Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. and welcome to another episode of the Mindful You podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Rosie Greenberg. Rosie is an artist, an illustrator, a writer, and a leadership development trainer, creating spaces for people to speak the unspoken truths and love their mess. She's devoted 15 years to teaching and creating more empathic organizational landscapes and being a CEO of Drawn to Lead. She has a BA in anthropology from Brown University and a master's of public policy from Harvard. She has graced us with her presence today to speak about imposter syndrome and our inner critic, which I'm super excited about. So we welcome her to the studio. How are you doing today? So good. Thanks for having me, David. I actually got an email from somebody at Naropa and they're like, you need to speak to this woman. And I was like, okay, let's bring her in. And you were all about it. So I got really excited. And one thing I was really excited about was I've never known what imposter syndrome was until somebody gave me an imposter syndrome test. Oh, wow. I got to try that. (laughs) Yeah. And it was kind of like a short form questionnaire. It was kind of interesting. And so from that, I got a little interested and then somehow you came up. And so I was like, ooh, so I started researching it and I'm like really into this podcast now. So I got a lot of fun questions for you. Okay, good. What stood out to you about the test? It didn't feel robust enough. It didn't feel like if you're going to call me an imposter, I might want to answer more questions to discover if I am. It just felt like 20 questions. I was like, oh. The sorting hat for imposter syndrome. I mean, I think I think that's an interesting part about it is the pointing a finger at somebody else to say you're an imposter is actually not what it's about. It's about the feeling that we all have of or that many of us have of like, am I the imposter here? So it's interesting that the test actually was like, mm, I don't know if you speak for me, which is actually quite a healthy response. <laughs> so to get started, I wanted to begin with what was your journey like? Because apparently you went to Harvard, you got a master's in public policy, you know, you went to Brown University. I'm wondering, what was your higher educational experience like? And did you have a direction when you started? Or you were kind of just like going into it thinking you want to study this and then it morphed into that? Like, what was your journey like? I graduated high school totally frustrated with the intensity of, yeah, we're starting at high school. Uh, no, but I graduated high school totally frustrated with the intensity of like pushing an academic excellence. And I thought, you know, I just have to be perfect in all these ways. And I took so many extracurriculars in high school to the point that they didn't even fit all on my college application. And I felt totally betrayed by this system that had told me I had to perform in all of these ways. So I went to Brown where you could take everything pass fail. And I did. I took every single subject pass fail. And they told me, they, I remember the dean once said, you'll so never no get into, grades is what, what no I'm No grades, okay. just like pass. I was still obsessed with getting like really good recommendations and stuff. But they were like, you're never going to get into grad school if you do this, Rosie. What? Yeah. So being a high achiever is not going to get you in grad school is what you're saying? Taking everything pass fail. They were really afraid. Oh, I see. I see. That if all I had on my transcript was a bunch of P's for pass, that I wouldn't get into grad school. Hmm. Okay. Anyways, to respond to your question, I mostly went in knowing what I didn't want to do in undergrad, and I was totally floating around 
I took a year off and was uh, living in the West Bank studying Arabic, actually, and fell in love with Arabic and with just like understanding people and systems in a deeper way. So that has been the thread throughout studying anthropology and Arabic in undergrad. And then I taught for a couple of years, worked in humanitarian aid in the Middle East, in Jordan, and then was frustrated with the ways that systems actually weren't working for people. And I was like, Harvard will have some answers. So when you say, <laughs> when you say systems, what systems are you talking about? Uh, Beneficial worked, systems for people, like public, public systems. Workings? So okay. I worked in the in the education system in Baltimore City. I felt like the students really needed one thing. I mean, each student needed so many things and wanted to be free in so many ways. And the district where the orders were coming down to our principal was saying, you know, they were just trying to control things, get high test scores, you know, deal with thousands of children in this educational system. But as a teacher in the classroom, everything kind of comes down onto you to serve the kids and what they need and to respond to the district and the principal with these kind of what feel to teachers or to me, it felt like edicts from on high that had no relationship to what the kids actually were going through. Similarly, like in Jordan, I was on the education sector of the Syria refugee response and we were deciding on educational policy for hundreds of thousands of Syrian folks who had been displaced who were refugees from Syria and Jordanian children and trying to figure out like, how do we serve all these kids? The relationship between the big level conversations around how do we serve all these people and the, you know, day-to-day realities of a kid who has to walk through a neighborhood to get to school or whose family, like neither of the parents can work. So the kid is like the little boy is going to go start working because that's more valuable to the family, to, to him at, the, at that point than being in one of the classrooms just felt like a huge disconnect between people's hearts and the bigger decisions that were being made without them. Ah, it's a big disconnect and it also kind of hurts the heart a little to see how real world just affects the ability to develop self. So I started studying leadership, trying to understand these systems and trying to understand like, how could we do this a little better? One of the major things I learned at Harvard was that nobody actually knows because, (laughs) yeah. You learned that. Okay. There was one particular moment I was sitting, we had done this big spring policy exercise, me and my team. We had kind of fudged the numbers like a little bit in the budget. Cooked the books. A little bit. I see. It was not entirely hidden. And I remember presenting it to one of the professors who had worked in the congressional budget office. And he, at the end, I was like, he's going to totally see this. And he was like, this is excellent work that I, it's professional level work that I would hope to see in the CBO. And at that moment, I was like, we have a lot of expertise, but nobody knows exactly what they're doing. And if nobody knows, then I can not know. And I can just step into the fray trying to figure things out. Okay, I see that. That's an interesting perspective to have. That feels almost empowering and disencouraging at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying if nobody knows the answers. Yeah. People have a lot of expertise. People have a lot of heart. There's a lot. I'm not saying there's no, there's nobody out there who has answers, but to most of the most challenging, like adaptive challenges, nobody has answers. We all can help make progress. Also too, it seems as though, cause like you were working with kids and then you were working with the person working with the organization. So there's this like macro and micro level of organizing and working with the children probably is different than working with how the functionality of the organization 
So there's different needs at the different levels, but yet it all comes back down to trying to function the organization in a way that benefits everyone. And exactly. it can get a little messy, I guess. Each of those levels has their own needs and perspectives on the entire system and their own wisdom and gold to offer and their own blind spots. And so seeing all of those, I don't mean to throw shade on any level. It can be really frustrating if you're in one level looking to another level being like, why isn't this authority figure seeing me or why aren't these people doing what I want them to do? We misunderstand the different levels because we can usually only see the needs and perspectives and wisdom and resources and losses of our own. Interesting. Okay. Thank you for sharing all that. So recently you had a workshop at the Naropa community and it was labeled Live Into Leadership Workshop. And what I was wondering, what did you kind of go over in that workshop and what was it like working with students and faculty and the like just the Naropa community in general? I love the Naropa community because it resonates with the connection between the inner psychological work art and the creative process and the spiritual that feels like the three legs of my stool feels like the same three legs of the Naropa community. So Live Into Leadership was about looking at our inner critics. Do we have to? Come on. (laughs) Exactly. I don't want to look at that. I know. And a lot of people step into my workshops and they're like, we can make this go away, right? I'm like, that's not what this is about, unfortunately. So sorry. But yeah, looking at it, we use art to really presence it outside of us, which is a huge piece of that shift. And then we gain some awareness and some like that, that wise observer part. We really build that by experiencing it as outside of us and then exploring it. So I think the Naropa community has a particularly fine-tuned ability to do that wise observation. Uh, There's a lot of training there and that ability to sit with what's hard. Yeah, we lean into the contemplative aspect of the education and like how we feel, what we think, what is the mechanism that is thinking. You know, we go beyond where the thoughts come from. We like to investigate. I feel like your three pillars kind of do match the Naropa constitutions. Yeah, and like so many people don't want to look at the parts of us that hurt and that willingness to jump in and be like, let's look here. Yeah, that's how I felt when I first went there. I was just like, oh God. Yeah, so I feel an affinity with Naropa. Awesome. You sort of stated a little bit about imposter syndrome and the inner critic. And what I'm wondering is, can you define what imposter syndrome is? Because when I hear the word imposter, I think of someone like taking over me. And when I read the definition, it felt like a little different. So I'm wondering if you could just clarify that for our audience. So I think of imposter as the sense that there is something in me that is not right in the outside space, in the outside environment. Or there's something about me that doesn't belong here. And that that message of I'm wrong, I don't belong, that comes for really important reasons. I mean, one, our society is literally telling us that some of us don't belong in certain spaces, right? Like whether you're a person of color in a traditionally white space in a white supremacist society or like a woman in a traditionally male space in a patriarchal society or the opposite. I mean, there are clear messages to some of us that we don't belong. So that's number one. So it's no wonder that some of us feel like we don't belong. And then also there's this sense of when we're kids, and this is a much longer story, but like we put away certain parts of us. We put away, maybe it's our joy, our creative, wild, weird, funky side, but maybe we put away our anger or our sadness to fit in and belong in our families. So there's always this part of us that is a little bit buried or a little bit hidden. 
And so I kind of think of imposter syndrome as having a sense of that part of there's something to me that I'm not sharing here or that's not allowed to belong in this space. And the phenomenon of feeling that disconnect between my wholeness as a person and what is quote unquote allowed in the environments that I'm a part of. And so there's this, you know, some people think of imposter syndrome and think of it as very individual. And originally it was called imposter phenomenon by the the folks that wrote the original article about it. But yeah, so I, I just think of it as it's not individual at all. It's a systemic thing. And then to claim like, oh, this is what I'm feeling as a feeling. It can be helpful to say, oh, I'm feeling like an imposter. And then that's when, you know, the inner critic is the part that is giving us all those messages. Okay, because when I originally heard this syndrome or term imposter, what I was thinking was you're acting something you're not. You're imposing a characteristic that isn't authentic to who you actually are. And so therefore you are an imposter to who you actually are. So that's what I thought it was. But it feels like it's like a kind of hiding something instead. I think it's both. I mean, I think there is a sense of parts of me that I can't always bring to every situation. And that is not a bad thing. There are some parts of me that are appropriate to a certain situation and some parts of me, you know, like appropriate to a friendship versus a work context. So it's not that I'm hiding the things in a work context that I wouldn't, you know, share or hiding with a friend some of other stuff. It's just that there are certain roles that I take and certain parts of me that I'm drawing on in those roles. I think with imposter syndrome, it's that the environment that we're in, like a work environment, tells us that certain parts of us are bad or not okay. And maybe that's like a really creative part of us that wants to paint the walls pink. I had a colleague in Jordan who she wanted to paint the walls pink in her office and the men were like, no, there are men that work in here. We can't paint the walls pink. Oh, I'm like into hot pink and black. Well, what we I'm did, down with that. Yeah. I mean, that'd be great. What we did ended up was uh, uh, we, we strung butterflies on strings over her desk and I got all the men to help me because they were like, you're a woman. You can't climb on the desk by yourself. So they got up to string all the butterflies. Oh, Anyways. Get over yourself, bro. <laughs> you know what? Pink is not for women. It's for anyone who likes the color. It may kind of lean a little bit more towards like a woman, I guess, and blue towards a boy, but it's color. So what? <laughs> yeah. And this is like a little bit of a silly example, but I find going simple on the examples then allows us to tap into the much deeper examples, you know, because there's everything from like, what, what of your trauma is not allowed in this workplace or what of your uh, culture is not allowed in this workplace. Like, I'm a man. We can't paint it pink. Come yeah, on. but that's just like a very simple example of the ways that some parts of us are not invited to work. Or exist. Right, or yeah. to exist at all. And so I feel like imposter syndrome is that knowledge that some part of me is not welcome here. Mm. Oh, that doesn't feel fair. That's not fun. <laughs> right, and like calling it syndrome in some ways is like, can be blaming the victim of like, you know, it's your, it's, it's just some illness that you have that you think you don't belong here. It's like, yeah, well, you fix it from the perspective of Go the system, out, fix it from the perspective of the system. Like we were saying all, all the different levels, you know, from the perspective of the, the workplace or whatever, it's like, oh, this individual might just not fit here. But if you look at, well, what are workplaces made up of? They're made up of individuals and experiences that we have and, and traditions and customs and habits and things that we share we create culture. And so we can create new cultures if we are 
saying, well, if we're looking at this and saying, oh, what parts of me are not allowed here and what parts do we actually agree that these parts are parts that we don't want in our workplace or do we just happen to say they're they're not appropriate? Interesting. All right. So this question is responding to phenomenon syndrome. Basically, while looking into imposter syndrome, I noticed that the National Library of Medicine mentions it's also a phenomenon. When I think of something being a phenomenon, I think of natural display of elements colliding of some sort like fire or wind or even a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, like it's a metamorphosis, but it's the process of metamorphosis is the phenomenon. And I don't know, like I just have this weird thing. It's just weird to me that phenomenon and syndrome can coexist with each other. And I'm wondering, like, how do you see that? Like a phenomenon being a syndrome or a syndrome being a phenomenon? I imagine syndrome as the individual experience of it or putting it, imagining it, constructing it to be an individual experience that exists within a person or a body. And phenomenon to me is a shared experience or a ubiquitous experience that this is what happens in a culture. This is what happens in a system. It's not individual. And so by looking at, okay, imposter phenomenon is this phenomenon, is this collective experience by which many, many of us feel we don't belong or that there's something inherently wrong with us. And that phenomenon if we can think of it as systemic, if we think of it as a shared external thing, we can look at it in new ways together where it's not just the thing where you have to go fix it in yourself, but where we can come together to acknowledge it, to explore it, and to really shift the ways that we are expecting things of each other, the ways that we're talking to each other, to shift our cultures and then free up the psychic energy to live into what we actually want to create in the world. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I started like going into the definition a bit more and looking at a phenomenon. And one of the definitions was saying it's a perspective of the mind. And like, I do agree with that. But I also don't think it's just contained to the mind because I think phenomenon happens, you know, like phenomenon does not just happen in the mind because it happens in nature. And so it's like we can both experience phenomenon, but we can have a different perspective because we have our own minds upon it. So I was just like, uh, you know, like starting to question the the national medicine of journals. I was like, I don't know, man. Like, is it a phenomenon? Is it? Question that. <laughs> okay, yeah. So in 1978, There was a study by Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes who developed the concept of imposter phenomenon, which was about how high achieving women constantly believed they weren't bright or that like they had fooled people into believing in them or into believing that they were smart. Yeah. So imposter phenomenon can also be that sense of like, I'm just tricking everyone and I got to keep it up. Huh. Okay. The outside of me doesn't always match the inside, but the outside, I have to like keep up appearances And this belief that like probably if everyone really knew what was going on inside of me or really knew who I am, then they wouldn't like me, approve of me, have me in this position. I wouldn't really be allowed here. So that was the original of it. And then in 2021, Rushika Tulishan and Jodi Ann Burry wrote this great article in the Harvard Business Review called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. (laughs) That is saying 
hey, let's look at the systemic here that certain systems are telling women you don't belong. There's something about you that, you know, and especially women of color saying, oh, you just have imposter syndrome. You got to work on that is to kind of blame the victim and to tell the women that they need to basically get better at being what the environment wants them to be rather than to look at the environment and say, hey, how do we actually invite, you know, a classic example is asking women to be more assertive, to leave emotions at the door, that you can't be both strong and compassionate or asking men, I mean, the same thing, you know, asking men to be strong, assertive, emotionless and look where that gets us all. And so saying, instead of saying to women, well, you just need to be more assertive, looking at the environment and saying, well, how do we all deal with emotions and how, do, how can we bring emotional vulnerability and care into our workspace more? Be what more aiming towards in looking at the inner critic and looking at all of it. It's not just an individual thing. It's how do we shift our environments? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's not you. It might be the environment in which you are in. Exactly. So like you're, maybe your inner critic is saying you're lazy, You should have worked harder on that. Well, let's think about the environments that we're in. Our workspaces are all about us working as hard as we possibly can. Like who who benefits from that, right? I can name a couple. (laughs) Exactly. The people who are paying you. Right. Our entire economy is based on, in some form, this sense that you are what you produce. That your value is the amount of things and the, the worth of what you produce. That's a kind of underlying fundamental belief in a materialist capitalist culture and so if you think about the messages that then come into a person of oh gosh I just took an hour to read a book on the couch that has nothing to do with my work or oh I just I'm so tired I don't want to do whatever I have to do we blame ourselves for being lazy whereas maybe we actually need a little bit of rest yeah and I guess it's how you label it were you lazy or is that self-care Right. You know what I mean? Or was that like a mental break from the work that you have been exhausted from? Exactly. And in our world, we think that's a binary. We think that either I can be caring to myself or I can be productive and accountable. I don't think that's a binary. I think our inner critics think that that's a binary because we borrow that from the outside world. But we can be caring and loving towards ourselves and have boundaries and accountability and get things done. It's like loving firmness rather than either just being firm or just being loving. Yeah, I agree with that. Another thing I noticed in the description of imposter syndrome is it mentioned it exists in high-performing people. And what I'm wondering is, what is the correlation between the syndrome and the performance of a person? Yeah, well, I think if somehow you don't believe you're good enough, let me speak in I language here. When I don't believe that I'm good enough or I think there is something fundamentally wrong with me, I look for self-esteem outside of me. And psychologist Pia Melody talks about looking for attribute-based self-esteem. So there's something about me that gives me esteem or other-based self-esteem that my esteem is how other people think of me. They're their appreciation or sense that I'm a good person means that I am a good person. And the third thing is performance-based self-esteem, that it's something that I do that makes me a worthwhile, worthy person. And so I think if for a lot of high-performing people, 
there can be a drive there for more and more and more accolades, more performance, and more, you know, more Ivy League degrees, in my case, mm-hmm. to... Just stack them up. Stack them up. Yeah, just go. <laughs> to say, see, look, world, I'm, I'm worthy, I'm important. So I think there's a, there's a huge correlation there between that sense of, do I really have something to offer here? And, and the drive sometimes for proving that through high performance. And of course, there's a lot of high performers where that drive just comes from this intrinsic belief that I have something to offer that I want to share with the world. I'm good enough. And so that's not to say that any high performer is driven by is driven by that self-doubt. And I can tell a personal story around that if it's helpful. Yeah, go for it. So my mom's a single mom. She decided of to... Of five, right? Of five. I read your website. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, a single mom of five. So she used donor dads and adoption to create our family. And in the late 80s and early 90s, that was not a common, as common a thing as it is today. And so my performance, as I was the oldest, and in some ways my performance at school mattered because I was, in a way, the proof of concept for this family structure you know, for, for people, including my grandmother would be like, <laughs> said to my mom, like, Julie, you're, you're weird. Like, don't let your kids think this is normal. There were a lot of people looking at my family being like, is this an okay way of making family? Can you really raise five kids as a single mom? Can, you know, is this okay? And so my it's performance not traditional. in school. It is not traditional. My performance in school mattered in a different way than it would have if I maybe had two parents, not to say that that the kids of two parents have it easy. Their performance matters for themselves in a very different way, depending on their own life. But in a way, people, I remember my grandpa, when I got into Brown, he was like, Julie, you did okay. And that my achievement that it was like, because I got into Brown meant much more than about my own educational path. It meant that my mom's decisions and this way of creating family and the way she had raised us was successful successful yeah like her mothering was a success because you went to college exactly interesting that seems like a lot of pressure on you as well yeah and it was a lot of pressure and I only you know I didn't even realize it at the time but I definitely felt it deeply the conditioning of the inner critic exactly in development and that's not to say that my mom was putting that pressure on me intensely like there is actually a deeply loving you know, like she wanted me to succeed because she cares about me and loves me. And and also she knew that I have this big mind and wanted to learn. And so she wanted the best academics and, and things for me. So I'm not saying inner critics come from parents by any nefarious means, although sometimes they are born of a lot of trauma. I mean, I think they can happen in so many different ways. You know, I believe in astrology. I think it's an astrological imprint. I think it's characteristics. I think it can be conditioning. There's just so many variations in how it can show up. So many ways, yeah. But so that's just one small way that the performance, the push to perform comes in from so many different factors in an environment from my, I mean, you could say like my soul's incarnation in this world being part of this particular, choosing this path, this family, this life challenges. You're speaking to my Buddhist heart right now. Exactly. All right. So this is really great because it's leading into my next question where, the idea of imposter syndrome seems like a new syndrome in the world of mental health and awareness. What I'm wondering is, 
if this syndrome was something that came to be within our current society and or do you think it always persisted in the human experience? For instance, was it like spawned by capitalism, internet, social media that created the emergence of the syndrome? Or do you feel like, I don't know, like maybe in the Roman times or Aristotle was like, oh, I'm not performing good enough or Socrates or, you know, something like that. Well, I don't know about Aristotle and Socrates. We'll have to ask them. <laughs> in my book, Everyone Has a Sam, Meeting the Inner Critic and Rewriting the Rules, I write that the inner critics are taught at inner critic school by all the best teachers. Inner critic school. Yeah. Okay. Capitalism, white supremacy, professor patriarchy, homophobia, intergenerational trauma, all the rest. All <laughs> yeah. the things. All the things. Yeah. And you could think of so many more that could go on that Oh, yeah, of course. List. Yeah, war. Yeah. And so I think that each of those systems, individualism, materialism, bring their own set of rules, their own set of fundamental kind of assumptions about the world and like what bodies are acceptable, what bodies are the epitome of beauty or the epitome of respect and what bodies matter less. That's like pretty awful to look at. And of course, so many people have a lived experience of their body mattering less. It's such a limiting way to look at the experience of life as well. People can look at you and the color you are puts an impression on them or, you know, who you're hanging out with, how you function, the society that you're in. Your anything, level of ability. Culture. Yeah. Yeah. Your neurodivergence, whatever it is, that sense of certain people matter more than others. I think the systems, capitalism, white supremacy, those encode those rules really deeply into our society, into our culture, into our families, and into our neural networks. So I do believe that those systems teach us the fundamental rules that then our inner critics pick up and are going by saying, you better hurry up, you better look like this, you know, you better exercise more, you're fat, you're too skinny, you're what I, you know, you don't look good, whatever it is, our self-doubt kind of is in contrast to something. So I, I don't know about in earlier days. I mean, I imagine that belonging and fitting in is a human need. Uh, and so whatever it took to fit in into various cultures is what our critics will take on. So I imagine there were just different rules in the days of Aristotle and Socrates, what it yeah. meant to fit in is different. And <laughs> that was just an example. <laughs> but I bet people did have inner critics then that were oh, telling us, telling them about those yeah. rules. And I guess the base of that question was experiencing when we were be like developing humans and our neural cortex was blowing up in the biological world. Do you think we all had inner sin imposter syndromes when we discovered the wheel and when we were... I don't know, in like different societies and developing culture and, you know, was this before we started making farms? I don't, I don't know. I was just thinking like it feels like social media can promote this idea of not being good enough. And so it reinforces that inner critic or the, the imposter-ness of that syndrome. I think they're from time immemorial – there is no child that has every single aspect of their inner environment mirrored by a parent at all times or a caregiver at all times. And whether that is through real trauma 
or through just like little developmental traumas along the way of, you know, the kids wildly playing outside in the yard and getting totally muddy. I'm sorry, outside the cave and getting totally muddy. And the parents like, don't bring that in here. The child doesn't hear, oh, they don't want my mud. They hear, oh, they don't want me. So I think there's just this normal thing in the context of human development that happens where we split off parts of us. And, you know, in, in Buddhist psychology, you would say like you, you split from the divine and that our life's path is about coming back to that divinity within us. So I think that initial mirroring as a, from kid to parent or parent to kid, there are these just totally normal splits that happen where the kid gets cut off from there or forgets their own divinity through these little moments or big moments. What I'm hearing from that too, there's this verbiage that a parental authority could use to a child where it's not clear enough for them to realize it's not about them. It's about the cleanliness of the mud or something. It's other than saying like, don't bring that in here. What is that? Yeah, I think Dr. Benjamin Spock was the first one to um, write to parents like, hey, talk about the behavior, not the being. And that's maybe a very fundamental thing right now, but that didn't, that A, wasn't always the case in how we think about parenting and also isn't always the case in how we speak. So if we talk about the behavior, like that thing wasn't okay. You're a fundamentally good person and I love you. And to maintain that connection, even when as a parent, you're really frustrated and you're totally annoyed that there's mud getting all over your house or whatever it is, trying to put the kid to bed for hours and they're still shouting and screaming and whatever. So those moments of, of like disconnection happen regardless. And first of all, it's about the repair of coming back. You don't have to be perfect. I think they say it's about 30% of the time is good enough parenting and good enough connection for attachment. Who says that? 30%. Yeah. I think it's like, it might be Winnicott. Okay. He talked about the holding environment or it might be. 30% of what? 30% attunement. Okay. Is enough for secure attachment. I see. Okay. Who's counting the percents? Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know, like, I don't know how they figured that out, but they did. And there's a number and it's 30. And, uh, but I, I do think in some ways our culture, as things get more and more complex and fragmented, as we have more things to do and more access to so many parts of the world for social media. Our attention is being splintered in so many directions yeah i think with that splintering also comes a splintering in all of the messages so there's just more and more and more and more messages about what you should be and it's like you should be your body should be larger your body should be smaller your body should be harder your body should be softer your body so we're getting hundreds of opposite messages and in my workshops people will i have everybody write out the messages that they're getting. And sometimes they're opposite. They're directly opposite. Like, and in my book, I write like your hair's too long and your hair's too short. You're working, you're too lazy. You're working too hard and you don't do enough self-care. You don't take time for yourself. Jeez, Sam's rough. Sam is rough, man. <laughs> Come on. Exactly. <laughs> nice. So I think it's just, it may just be that the, the rules have multiplied rather than the fact that the critic has multiplied or the imposter syndrome has grown. Or amplified amplified and i think the rates of depression like double every generation something like that and so there's more and more rules and we're less and less able to handle them all and see them all and be aware and choose until we do a lot of the sitting still and a lot of the looking and a lot of the awareness practices that 
you and other neuropa folks know so well. Interesting. Okay. So imposter syndrome seems like a mental outlook that may be affecting our lives without us even knowing it. So it can be like this unconscious bias, I guess, of self. With this idea, how can we notice when we are imposing and impostering qualities onto ourselves, And how can we combat it from injuring our experience? So what are some practices, things we can do to promote the opposite or just be able to recognize when we are impostering? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's exactly the question. And exactly the practice is noticing. Noticing when am I putting myself down? When am I making myself less than? And to just remind ourselves that there's no human that is morally less than or more than anybody else. So noticing, and so often for us, that inner critic just, it'll say something like, you're a terrible artist. And you just, you don't hear it as a you, you just hear it as I'm a terrible artist, or maybe just a sense that there's just something wrong with me. And so the first thing is noticing, oh, that's pervasive sense that I'm doing something wrong or making mistakes or there's something wrong with me. That's my inner critic, noticing it. In my workshops, I have people draw it to get it on the page outside of themselves. So the first step is noticing and noticing the moments where it comes up and then deciding. And we have, I have a whole process for how do you decide what parts of it you want to listen to, what parts not. We're not getting rid of it. It can be a beautiful ally for us. Can you get rid of it? No. Exactly. But you can skillfully work with exactly. and, and notice it. Noticing it and being very conscious of which parts of what it is saying are wisdom that are just trying to help us, that are kind, compassionate. Here's a little hint about the world, Rosie. It's like a little spiritual nugget. You're just saying it like a jerk, though. Exactly. So, yeah, the first thing is like noticing it, then being like, don't talk to me like that. Talk <laughs> to me nice. How dare you? I want to hear what you have to say. You need to talk to me nice. Then when they, if they can say it nicely or if we can rephrase it in our brains nicely, then to decide what's the wisdom here for me. That's the first part for ourselves. The second piece is psychologist Terry Real talks about how inner critic and outer judgment, aka shame on us and grandiosity or shame on other people, comes from the same stem. It's about contempt the root of contempt. So we can have contempt on ourselves, but we can also put that contempt out on other people. And that actually feels good when we do that. We feel big, we feel grandiose, we feel better when we're judging other people. And so that's a place to notice as well, the outer critic saying, oh, I'm doing this to other people. Let me notice it. Let me say, I better not talk to you like that. What is the wisdom here for myself or for somebody else? And shifting the way that we speak. In one of my workshops, a guy so brave. Love this man. He stood up in front of 400 people. He said, your work has made me realize that I have become the Sam for my girlfriend. I am the inner critic in my girlfriend's head. That's my voice. And I'm going to change how I talk to her because of this. So it's both about changing how we talk to ourselves and how we talk to other people. And that's where the organizational family societal piece comes in because if we can really change how we talk to each other as a society then we change how we talk to ourselves first how we talk to each other then we're shifting totally kind of what are the rules and we're living from love rather than shame yeah interesting i sometimes think of there's a committee of voices in my head who's to say there's one and 
And the thing is, is this inner critic, this impostering voice that we're speaking of, it's just one chair at the table. And so when I hear crap like that, where it's like getting me down, it's my own self-generated, I'm like, well, you know, what does the other voice have to say? I try to balance it out. And also everything you're saying sounds very artistic. I don't want to say generalize every single artist, but I'm going to say every single artist or most artists always feel like they can get better, you know? So it has this quality of artistic characteristic where you do a piece of art and someone's like, oh, that's amazing. You're like, yeah, you know, it's like whatever. I could do better. I wish I could. I would have done this. Hashtag that's the inner critic. Yeah. Teaching us how to be artists in the world. That's one of the rules for artists is that you can always get better. And the one of the rules for people is that we can't just stand in pride of ourselves. That's one of the rules that our critic has. What would it be if we could just take in that that love of like, this is a beautiful thing and be like, wow, I made that. <laughs> like Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci's probably like, I could probably do better. Exactly. And that's where the noticing comes in to just notice when we're doing that. Somebody's giving us a compliment and we're saying, ah, oh, yeah, but it could be better or I should do it. Again. You know, just what if, what if we just took compliment i know it's so scary right you're, you're, i don't like you're, it <laughs> i don't like it so I, I do this thing where i dj what's called an ecstatic dance it's kind of like a meditative yoga environment where it's it's like a healing space no talking on the dance floor and it's just this energetic move through elements of music i drop bass pretty much but at the end of it the dj gets the middle and everyone just like praises it gives love and i'm just like i don't like all eyes on me it's just weird why don't you like taking in know. that love? I don't know. What's it? What's risky about it? Or what's the bad thing that Stop might happen? Stop looking at me. <laughs> and I what's the bad thing that happens when people look at us? I don't know if I can answer that. There's just something about it that feels weird to be honored from a, like a lot of people at once. Yeah. You know? I. <laughs> in those moments for me, I feel very vulnerable. I feel exposed. Yeah. yeah. And I feel I have some story from childhood that if I'm too good, I will hurt other people. Hmm. I think like who's saying that though? Where is that coming from? I remember in kindergarten, my art teacher, Mrs. Bach, was incredibly like fierce and sharp. And uh, I remember her looking at, there were these like boxes of broken crayons that we would color from. And uh, I remember her screaming at another kid. It was probably just shout, like talking loudly, but I was five. She was saying, you know, you're coloring with your entire arm. Don't color with your entire arm. Look at Rosie. She's coloring with her wrist. She can color within the lines. Rosie, that's a beautiful job. But I could see how that felt to that other kid. So it wasn't just praise to me. It was this other person was being compared to me and I could see the pain there and them. And so I think that's just one moment of being like, oh, I can't, I can't take in praise because I might hurt somebody else. Mm, okay, I didn't understand that until that experience. That makes sense. It's like your example of doing it right is highlighting someone else's example of doing it wrong. That's my deep fear. I mean, that was when I was five, but that yeah. still carries through today that like... It sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's just vulnerable standing there and saying, I'm proud of myself and I'm going to take in this appreciation we have so many stories about how that's selfish, that's grandiose, that's somehow not right. So I, th I think sometimes being proud of ourselves and taking in praise is actually harder than being hard on ourselves. 
it's easier in that moment to say, well, I could have made it better. I should do this more just or, or giving somebody else a compliment like, well, you did great too. I do that a lot, but just taking it in and letting that energy fill us with just the recognition that this thing is not about performance. It's about me sharing some element of my divinity. Like I imagine your ecstatic dances are coming not from that place of like your music is coming from a place of love and connection to something great. Bass. Yeah. <laughs> and vibe and, and connection with right. people. Yeah. And that's a part of your essence and your core. And see, it's hard to even take it in right now that, that like that's something yeah, I do beautiful. Thing where I, I just like look away. I'm like, thanks. You know, We've been taught to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of healing the inner critic is also healing the part of us that shies away from, I mean, appreciation, the, right? Yeah. Appreciation. And, and I would call it recognition of our divinity. Okay. That it's really vulnerable to stand in our divinity, in our essence. I think it is. And at the same time, I don't think it is not. Because all this, th- all this thing we're talking about is an imprint of a voice in your head that is not essentially the correct authority that you want to go from. It is a splintered piece of your mind that is not entirely you, you know? Because, again, like, I think there's many people at the table speaking, and I don't know, it's it's almost like, Star Wars, it's like the force. It's easier to do the dark side, which is the inner critic, but it's harder to do the Jedi, which is the inner work, the like stopping, realizing how you feel when you get upset, not being upset, but feeling upset and then responding with like, hey, I didn't agree with that, like, but with a loving, caring, compassionate approach to trying to figure stuff out in a way that can share space with someone even though you're not agreeing with them there's like the skillful manner so i don't know it's like we have to realize that we have another voice in our head that's going to be like we love you we're a team let's do this yeah i mean i i'm a huge fan of dick schwartz's internal family systems which is about all of the different parts of us and that we have all these parts in our heads and minds and then we have this self that is just this unassailable creative, curious, compassionate, there's eight C's, <laughs> loving part, uh, not a part, loving essence, really. So how do we drop into that and drop into that more of the time? And I think that's the kind of Jedi place that you're talking about. And when I think about dropping into that in relation to praise, we're often, not always, but often when we're, meet, when we're met with praise, the praise is coming from a part of somebody else around a place of attribute or performance or other based esteem putting that onto us saying you're amazing because you did this thing there can be like they're putting us up one and themselves down there can be a comparison in that and so I think there's something that we pick up some quality of disconnection that we pick up in praise sometimes when that praise is coming from is coming about an attribute or about a performance or about a somebody else's like for us that can shift when we really drop into presence and into that self we can hold all of that praise for various parts of us 
And also we can hear the praise that is for our beingness and just that like, I appreciate your beingness for bringing what you brought today for being here. I appreciate your beingness for the attributes and performance and all this, whatever. It's interesting because when we're, when we're chastising or critiquing someone, we want to do it about the behavior. And when we're praising, we want to also do it about the behavior. And there can be also a quality of recognizing their deeper essence of who they are and just honoring that. Yeah. Interesting. Imposter syndrome seems like an ability to, you know, self-doubt. You have these like self-doubting qualities in your head. You have this voice that's kind of like talking crap to you or making you feel like you're not enough. But yet if we boost those qualities in the other way, it's like we're too cocky, we're arrogant, or we just have a big ego. So knowing this, where do you find the healthy balance between being an imposter in your head and being too cocky or arrogant? Where's the middle ground to where you can thrive? Right. That's kind of where Terry Real is saying, you know, the contempt goes out or goes in. And what I find with sometimes the response to the critic is saying, I'm strong, I'm powerful, you know, affirmations, I am beautiful. And what I find, and then acting in that way of like, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be powerful. And you're right that sometimes that can become grandiosity. And actually, that is built on the exact same foundation that the critic is built on, which is a foundation that says, you must be strong, you cannot be weak. You must be powerful, you cannot be vulnerable. What I find, instead of going back and forth between those binaries, is if we actually look at the underlying foundation of what am I saying I should be and what am I saying I should not be? And how do I hold both parts of that as part of being human? Saying I am powerful and I am weak sometimes. I am vulnerable and I am strong. And it's okay to be all of that. It's okay to be weak sometimes. Then we don't have to fight with the critic when the critic says, you're being weak. You just say, yeah, I am. And then we can decide, is this a moment where I want to be, allow myself to be weak and be held and be vulnerable or whatever, you know, whatever it is, or is this a moment to be powerful? And we have a lot more choice and agency about the parts of us that we choose, uh, that we want to live into. So I think instead of trying to either listen to the critic and get better at being the things that it says we should be, or completely avoiding it and trying to be the opposite, it's about looking at the underlying foundation of all of the different parts of being human and accepting and welcoming and clearing away the stories and the trauma, traumatic experiences, like not clearing away, healing, the stories and the traumatic experiences that told us that we couldn't be those things or that it was too dangerous to be certain things in life and holding it all. Yeah. And I find it interesting too, because you can use those types of subtle energies to have them be a barometer for deciding how you want to exist in a space. <laughs> so you can, uh, I don't know, the word weak to me it seems to have this like, oh, you suck. You're just, you do nothing. And, you know, you just forfeit over your energy. But sometimes I see, you know, when your body's weak, 
it's just tired. The best thing to do is rest. It's not go run a marathon because you're just going to exhaust yourself. So you have to replenish yourself in a way. And the only way to do that is by resting. So sometimes taking care of yourself is more important than going hard or performing the duties at work that feel a little overreaching and they're like going into your personal life or your family life and you're just like dude like this is taking over my life but like this is only a part of my life exactly and you could imagine that committee of parts in your head the council the council consult the council each one has a different opinion about what you should be doing and the inner critic is a really powerful important member at that table uh, neurobiologist dan siegel talks about this part of us that scans i was reading a thing by him i had already named sam like a year before was reading something about inner critics and he wrote that it's this part that scans, alerts, and motivates. Mm. S-A-M. Uh-oh. And I was like, whoa! Wait a minute. But think about that. It scans the environment mm-hmm. to know, like, what are the rules here? It's really good at scanning the environment. It alerts us to any risks in that environment and it can motivate us to do something. And so we can use that data that it's giving us from the scanning, the alerting, and the motivating the SAM system. Uh-huh. Everyone has a SAM. Hey. And all of the data that's coming from the rest of the council. And then we can, you know, as the board chair or the driver of the bus or whatever you like to use, we can decide, okay, what's... It's a round table. What is it for me right now? <laughs> yeah. You're King Arthur. Well, it's just like all opinions are here and uh, I'll move forward with what works best. Exactly. So Interesting. Exactly. And that all of those opinions have great wisdom in them when uh-huh. we can listen to them. So yeah. often we push it away because it's hard to hear or it has hard impact when we're always following it or it just gets annoying um, in the way that maybe the critic is talking to us. But if we can really just hear great, there's usually like really, really important wisdom. Yeah, we're more intelligent than we think. And we have like great information to tell ourselves. It's just sometimes we get swamped in the stuff that doesn't. Right. And we've got this really powerful, beautiful council in our heads, including the critic, but also including like the fairy godmother, beautiful, kind voice who just knows exactly the love that we need to hear in that moment. We can always tune into that. We've got the aliens, well. you know, all that weird stuff. A friend said to me today, he was like, your mind, li- your mind lives on the edge of the illogical and that's why you're so creative. Ooh, okay. And I kind of love that. Yeah. I mean, to be creative, you got to think outside the box, I guess. Yeah. Or outside of something. Mm, thanks, Jason. <laughs> so, okay, well, that is our time. This was such an amazing conversation. I honestly, I only went through half of my questions. There was so much to go over, but it was just so easily to talk to you that we just kind of flow through it really nicely. But before we leave, I just want to give you this moment to shout out your book that you just gave me, which I'm really excited about. This seems like a really cool book. And also any workshops or like websites, social media, anything like that for the audience. Thank you so much. The book is called Everyone Has a Sam, Meeting the Inner Critic and Rewriting the Rules. It is written and illustrated by me. It looks like a kid's book, but it is for adults. It's for everyone from ages 8 to 108 who could use to look at their inner critic. So Everyone Has a Sam. It's on Amazon as well as on my website, which is drawntolead.org. Drawntolead.org. You can get a signed copy there. Okay, great. Uh, do you have like any social medias? At drawntolead.org, you will find the book. You will find my portfolio as well as information on upcoming workshops and ways that you can bring me and or the SAM workshop to your organization uh, to bring community together. 
Instagram, I'm love.that.mess. Love okay. that Ooh. mess. Okay. <laughs> I have another website Just also. Just let it all out. Love that mess. <laughs> Lovethatmess.com. You can find okay. my portfolio and some more uh, information about Sam as well as the a gallery of people's inner critics. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. So lovethatmess.com or at love.that.mess. Like the inner critic bar. Yeah. I'm dreaming of a gallery show where we have hundreds of people's inner critics. I can see it. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And I hope to see more of this inner Sam work and just kind of see where your workshops take you. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.